Yeah, I mean, and the the relationship between perfectionism and imposter syndrome is, is very well documented, right? Because if you are hooking your identity to I am this thing, what protects that thing is sustained success at that thing. I'm a straight A student. I can't be a straight A student if I'm not getting straight A's, right? So imposter syndrome is this idea that I cannot internalize and own my successes because I fundamentally believe that I'm a fraud. And I'm worried that someone someday is going to come find me and show me that or prove that I am and I will lose what I have. Hello and welcome to NCAGT's first ever podcast, They'll Be Fine. I'm one of your hosts, Hannah Park, and for this episode, Jessica Applegate, the executive director of NCAGT, will be co-hosting. Time and time again, we hear, they'll be fine, they're smart, they're already ahead of the game when people refer to gifted learners. Because of this sad misconception, too many students fail to reach their potential because they do not receive appropriately challenging curriculum and services. The National Association for Gifted Children reports that 73% of teachers agreed that too often the brightest students are bored and under-challenged in school because we're not giving them a sufficient chance to thrive. Our nation's education policies narrowly focus on the achievement gap for struggling learners, which is extremely problematic for the widening excellence gap faced by high-ability students. Most regular classroom teachers do not receive adequate training to recognize and address the needs of these high-ability learners. This is even more pronounced for children of color, English language learners, and children from low-income backgrounds. In addition, these teachers are under a prohibitive amount of pressure to close the achievement gap of their struggling students. And while this is a very important measure, it shouldn't be at the expense of our gifted and talented students. So here at NCAGT, we believe that it's up to us as parents, educators, and stakeholders to provide the gifted community the support that they rightfully deserve. Listen to They'll Be Fine to learn more about what you can do to ensure that your gifted and talented scholars are provided the resources they need to thrive. We're here because the saying, they'll be fine, just isn't good enough. Today we're sitting down with Dr. Matthew Zakreski. He is going to be one of our keynote speakers at our conference in March, and we had the best conversation with him that we actually had to split this into two episodes. So Dr. Matt is a high-energy creative clinical psychologist who utilizes an eclectic approach to meet the specific needs of his neurodiverse clients. He is proud to serve as a consultant to schools, a professor, and a researcher on giftedness. He has spoken over 200 times all over the world about supporting neurodivergent kids, including keynote speeches in the Netherlands, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, Dallas, and Reno. Dr. Zakreski is a member of Supporting the Emotional Needs of the Gifted, the National Association for Gifted Children, the New Jersey Association for Gifted Children, and Pennsylvania Association for Gifted Education. He's the co-founder and lead clinician at the Neurodiversity Collective, and his website is www.drmattzakreski.com. He runs a pretty fun and helpful Facebook page, so make sure you look him up. 
Three things that he wanted us to share with you is that he has been a professional cartoonist for most of his life. He went to Wake Forest University in the beautiful Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and he has actually met his fair share of celebrities, including Bruce Springsteen, Ted Turner, Kevin Smith, Chris Paul. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Matt Zakreski. So Matt, welcome to They'll Be Fine. Thank you so much for being here with us. We're so excited to have you. I know that I, you were one of the first people that came to mind when we were trying to think of people that we wanted to speak to. So um, we just appreciate you being here. Well, I'm, I'm super excited to be here. I, you know, I love being on podcasts and obviously I have a particular affection for North Carolina. So, and you guys, so it's just sort of a win, win, win as far as I'm concerned. Yay. Well, it's a shared love. So word on the street is you have been a professional cartoonist for most of your life and you're even working on a graphic novel. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So, um, I had, um, so when I was really little, um, I was, I think seventh grade, um, you know, I've been drawing to that point in my life, but there was a, uh, there was a cartoonist coming to school for career day. And I was so excited. I made a portfolio. I was ready to go. And then, and then my public school growing up, which didn't do a lot of gifted programming, were like, oh, hey, we've got a project-based learning day that day. So we're all getting on a bus and going to Princeton University and we're going to do projects. And I was like, but, but no, you know, it's like, it's like when you had that weekend where it's like, there's so many weekends you got nothing to do. And then there's the one weekend where it's like your friend has a party, your friends are in town, your other friend has a party. There's like a cool outdoor thing. There's a concert. You're like, can we just space this out, people? No? I, I, okay. We're just... So I I made my mom get me to school early and I put my portfolio on the desk with a note that said, hi, my name is Matt Sokreski. I want to be a professional cartoonist. I can't be there today. Please read this and please, well, I mean, this was 1997. So there wasn't really email in the certainly in the way that we have it today, it's like, please call me at home. <laughs> this thing called a landline, I, you, you kids will get it someday. Um, but you know, a week or half a week or so later, he called me, and said, You're really talented, I want you to come work for me, I want you to be my, my mentee. And you know, I mean, that really sort of showed me like what a pro does and what I needed to do to get to where that was. Um, and it's looked like a lot of different things over time. I mean, designing t-shirts, making logos, running my own web comic. Um, I have a, uh, I was the head cartoonist for Wake Forest University's, uh, student paper, the old golden black for all four years I was there. And I ran a web comic for a couple of years and all of this stuff sort of melded into this graphic novel I'm working on. Um, which, you know, Knockwood comes out later this year. Um, been working with a fabulous editor and um, a lot of really great people who've been weighing in. And I think it's going to be really powerful. I know our kids are, you know, gifted and toys exceptional learners really like the graphic novel format. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think we're speaking to a place of authenticity because, you know, as a, gifted person myself who works with many gifted and two E people. I mean, these experiences, they're not something I read in a book, right? There's something that I've lived with, with my clients or lived myself. 
Um, so, you know, I think, I think regardless where you are in your gifted journey, you're going to read this book and you're going to go, oh yeah, that I remember like that's happened to me or something very similar has happened to me because it's, it's built from real life. That's awesome. So I know you have children. Have your kids read the book? Are they gifted? So my kids are four and a half and two and a half. Okay. Um, so not readers yet. <laughs> not readers yet, though they do love books. Uh, we're working on sight words right now. Um, and people often ask me, you know, do you think your kids are gifted, will be gifted? I honestly don't know. I mean, it's, they're clearly bright. You know, I mean, I'm gifted. My wife is even though she doesn't believe it, she's also gifted. Um, that could be an entirely separate podcast, convincing <laughs> adults that they're gifted. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, our kids come from very smart people. I, might, I met my wife on the very first day of grad school. So she's also a doctor. Um, she picked up an extra master's degree along the way because she's an overachiever. Um, that's right, honey. I said that on a national podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, but fundamentally i think this work always comes down to giving kids what they need right and so if a kid needs to fidget when they're learning let them fidget if a kid needs advanced calculus let them have advanced calculus if a kid needs to only read graphic novels instead of reading classic textbooks let them read the graphic novels right so regardless of where my kids fall on the intelligence learning spectrum I want them to have what they need. So that means I'm always going to advocate for them to get what they need. So if they are 147 IQs and quickly outpace me in the STEM field, great. If they are, I mean, giant air quotes for the people who can't see us, giant air quotes, just like average or high average intelligence, then they'll have strengths and weaknesses based in that. And we'll try and give them what they need from there. So I try to... I, I mean, fundamentally, I think this work is all about meeting kids where they are, and that applies wherever we start our journey. I love that. This is my sign that I teach my kids to do when they agree with someone. <laughs> they should, they're, they're, they're me too sign, or I yep. agree. I yeah. love that. And I love that you say, if they need to read graphic novels, let them read graphic novel, novels. At least they're reading, because so often you get some kind of old school teachers who are like, you need to be reading Lord of the Flies right now. And this is what we're doing. And this is your independent reading time. And this is what you have to read. And it's like, if they're reading, celebrate that, let them read the sports magazines, at least that's a nonfiction text right there. Just let them read it. Let them read what they're interested in. And don't take away that love of reading that, that just yeah. challenges them for the rest of their life. Now they think they hate to read, or now they think they hate to learn, but really what it is, is they hate to be forced just like the rest of us, just like adults, right? We hate to be forced to do something we don't want to do. That doesn't necessarily. So that's my biggest thing with my kids is like, whatever. I have a seven-year-old who reads, he consumed like 10 graphic novels. When we went to the library on Friday, he came home with a stack. Yeah, but I to get him to sit down and like do school, he bites me tooth and nail. So I'm like, let's find any graphic novel we can that you will read. And then let's discuss it. Or let's find some way to not take away that love of learning at the age of seven, because I'm determined to make you sit down at the table and do things my way. Yeah. yeah. It's so beautiful. Somebody's getting an autographed copy of my graphic novel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, to that end, right? So you know, as a gifted kid, right? One of the one of the seminal experiences in my life was attending the Center for Talented Youth summer camp. Uh, it was run th through Johns Hopkins University. I went for five years. 
And I still am friends with many people I went to that camp with, one of which is my dear friend, John. And several years ago, he put together sort of an online Gmail-based think tank where we would send each other articles and discuss them in the comments and such a nerdy, smart kid thing to do, right? And and it's, this is actually sort of organically going to be a nice segue into imposter syndrome. But the idea here is like, the people that John know, knows are like Stanford PhDs, MIT master's degrees, right? I went to the Sorbonne, right? I mean, it's like, whoa, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm i just a doctor. Uh, I don't have a real doctorate. It's a PsyD. Uh, it's not true, but, you know, it feels that way sometimes. But the idea is I, I love sports and I love pop culture. So a lot of the things I process, I process through those lenses, Right. So you're going to read an article about sports, but it's but they're talking about soccer through the lens of the Hundred Days War. Okay, that's really interesting, right? So to learn the proper context, you need to read about the Hundred Days War. So I pull up another tab and I read that, and then I go back to reading the story about soccer. Organic reading, organic learning based on a love of learning. So I would send articles through that lens. I mean, yes, it wasn't from The Economist. It wasn't from Harper's Weekly. You know, it wasn't from Obscure Academic Journal. It was from ESPN.com or it was from The Athletic. But people would always respond to the articles I send. Like, those are really interesting. You're coming at this from a different perspective. Like, yes, can I read The New Yorker? Of course, I enjoy The New Yorker. But the things I am most intrinsically motivated to consume and process and engage with are often through the sports and pop culture lens. So leaning into that, I think, makes me certainly a better psychologist, but I think just a better person for conversation because it's it's owning something that makes my style unique. Well, so right before we jump into the the meat of this conversation, I... So I'm working in the gifted field, but I'm not an educator. I'm a business person and you are a psychologist. So you're obviously also not an educator. Most of the people we're going to have on here are going to be educators, but I have always wanted to ask you, how did gifted students, how did gifted people become such a big part of the work that you do? I mean, that's a fabulous question. Um, It really starts with the idea that I was born in probably the most privileged, ideal situation for a gifted kid. Both of my parents are clinical psychologists. They met and trained at the University of Virginia, where Carolyn Callahan is, and Carolyn Tomlinson is now. I mean, so two of the giants of our field, you know, and they moved to a really nice suburb with really good public schools. So I have two doctor parents in a good town with good schools. They knew what to look for. They identified me. They had an inkling very early when I spelled the word Australia independently when I was three years old. And the daycare person called my mom at work. And my mom was like, what's wrong? And <laughs> Hannah, you're never going to get over that when the phone rings and it's someone about your kid. It's like, what, what? She, he wrote the word Australia by himself? <laughs> and my mom was like, oh yeah, that's a thing he does. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> So when I was identified in second grade, it was because my parents knew what to look for, knew what to ask for, knew who to go to get those tests done. And and even with all of those pieces of privilege, 
I still struggled. I still got my butt kicked. I mean, the performance cliff hit me like a ton of bricks. And, and that, and those things were something that I was so blessed and privileged to have the environment I was in. And thinking about that, even from a young age of like, not everybody has the financial wherewithal to send a kid to summer camp. Not everybody can move to a town with good public schools. Not everybody have parents who understand the questions to ask when you're having an emotional meltdown, right? Because you're because you're 11 and the world is fundamentally unfair and you don't want to learn another year of subtraction. You'd like to move on to the better math, please. I was so lucky, but I, I mean, I said like, I want to be the adult that the kids like me needed, right? I had those adults and a lot of kids don't. So, you know, this, I think ask anybody in a kids, kid facing job, whether it's teaching, advocacy, mental health, coaching, a lot of us get into this because we want to be the adults we wish we had as kids or be like the adults we were lucky enough to have as kids. Mm. So, you know, so I'm, for me, it's a little column, a little column B, right. But it's, yeah, that's that's where my journey started. Awesome. So you're one of our keynote speakers at the conference in March. Woohoo! I know I'm so excited. We're all so excited. So can you tell us a little bit about what our attendees should be looking forward to? Oh boy. Um, yes. So when you hear me talk, um, and you know, we're X minutes into this, and hopefully you're entertained. And if you're not, well. <laughs> There's many other wonderful speakers at the conference. <laughs> I, I really believe in three things because even though I'm not an educator, I do have to do professional development and psych, in mental health, we call it continuing education. And so many of these are drier than burnt toast. To use a very North Carolina thing, it's like the, you done overcooked your biscuits. Yeah. So you, if you come to one of my talks and come to my keynote, you're going to be entertained. You're going to learn something and you're going to leave with a practical strategy. So those are the three things that I try to guarantee, right? Because we've all sat through the PD of death, right? You know, <laughs> and another thing about the Wilson reading method that is effective <laughs> is that reading. And you're just like, oh my God, I could read the Wikipedia article. But I also want you to learn something, right? I mean, that's the knowledge piece of this. And then I really, really dislike PDs where they're like, wow, this thing is a thing that's happening and it's really hard. Well, that's my time. Good night, everybody. Like, what, what do I do? Give me a thing to do, yes. right? So, mm -hmm. so I want you to leave with a strategy and a strategy that is accessible and practical. Right. I mean, okay, well, so what I want you to do is spend three hours a day with every kid in your classroom crafting and individualize it. That's not possible. That doesn't work. Right. I mean, teachers are overloaded and overburdened as it is. So, um, you know, a big part of what I do is like, here's a thing that anybody could do. Right. Here's a small five to 10 minute thing you can add that will be nice or do this instead of this other thing. Right. Work smart, not hard. Yeah, because I don't want to be another talking head who just asks teachers to do even more, right? Part of this, right? And I hope we're lucky enough to have some administrators there. I know I know at least one who's coming because uh, she contacted me on LinkedIn. Um, but I mean, that starts, that's a top-down thing. I mean, the support to do this stuff properly starts in the big room and it comes down 
hopefully to every nook and cranny of the school. I'm excited. This that's going to be awesome. Yeah. So how do you explain to people that maybe aren't familiar with the gifted world? How would you explain to someone what it means to be gifted? Hmm. So like a lot of good definitions, right? What giftedness is, is sometimes better defined by what it isn't. Actually, oftentimes I start there. Um, I was once asked to consult to a district in Virginia where in my colleague's classroom, they had 27 kids and 25 of them were in the gifted program. And this was not a gifted school. And, and so I got to have a conversation with their administrator. I said, that's not possible. That is st- statistically not going to happen. Well, but, you know, by our metrics and it's like, right, right, right. Because so many parents out there think that giftedness is a sign of honor, right? It's this thing that's going to get your kid into, and this pains me to say Duke, (laughs) Carolina, but I mean, listen, I'm a Wake Forest guy. So I'm required by law to dislike those blue devils Uh, or Harvard or MIT or Stanford fill an elite university here. And you ask any parent of a gifted kid, you know, I mean, giftedness is not always a gift. In fact, often it isn't, right? So I think a lot of times people are like, oh, gifted means straight A's, hands folded in class, little senator, right? On the on the playground, right? Little co-teacher, right? And, and gifted kids can present that way. I was that way for many years of my life. But then life gets in the way and asynchronous development gets in the way and it becomes messier. Right. I mean, so giftedness really is, is a piece of neuro neurodivergence, someone who has a different brain. And if you look at the research on this, and a couple of years ago, I co-wrote an article with Nicole Tetro about this. Um, there's lots of other people who do amazing brain research on this, but the gifted brain is quantitatively different, you know, and we could, we could dissemble on that at, at great length, but suffice it to say, there's a reason gifted learners have a seat at the table for neurodivergence, because it is a different brain. And there are some parts of that that are superpowers. And there are some parts of that that are kryptonite, you know? And a lot of times when I tell people what giftedness is, it's like, yes, these kids are capable of amazing things, but that isn't a, a, a claim towards superiority. It isn't an assertion of my kid's better than your kid. My kid's going to go to Stanford. Your kid isn't. It's a idea of my kid has these strengths and weaknesses based on this neurotype. But, you know, let's zoom out for a second. If you have a fourth grader who's reading Chaucer and doing chemistry experiments for fun, but they can't kick a soccer ball, what do you think matters more to fourth graders? Right? I mean, that's that's where most kids come to me for therapy, it's it's not because of the learning thing or the learning thing is a small part of it. It's the fact that like, I don't have any friends or like, or it's really hard for me to connect to people. And I am a very emotional person and I keep getting picked on and then I melt down. So the kids pick on me more because that's really fun to watch Johnny have a meltdown. You know, so the world is not built for neurodivergent people, especially kids. So- mm-hmm. The idea here is like the more you understand what giftedness is and how that loads through the lens of neurodivergence, that's where we can start that conversation and build understanding from there. 
Uh, because if we're if we are anchoring that stuff in good brain science, I think it cuts through a lot of the misinformation and stereotypes about gifted learners. You know, and I still hear, oh, you mean like Sheldon Cooper? It's like, <laughs> kinda, not really. That's a whole separate conversation, really. But you know, I mean, it. <laughs> but once again, we meet people where they are, right? So if like if that's where you're going to start the conversation, I can take you to where I need you to go from that point, right? But giftedness is so much more than that IQ number of 130. It's really about an incomplete brain experience. And I think a lot of people misunderstand that. Yes. Yeah. And so along the lines of that complete brain experience, and then having those two sides that are balanced is one of the ideas that we're talking about today, which is perfectionism. So can you describe for us what perfectionism is? So perfectionism is an inability to tolerate experiences that are different or less than your expected version of that experience. So fundamentally, perfectionism is about anxiety. If things are perfect, then I don't need to worry about them. (laughs) But if they're not perfect, then I'm going to freak out. Every person has a bandwidth of anxiety they can tolerate. Right? We call this the Yerkes-Dodson law, right? When things are too easy, we disengage. When they're too hard, we freak out. Everybody's got an optimal level of anxiety. People who are perfectionistic tend to have a smaller optimal range of anxiety because, you know, we'll use a test example, right? Ideally, you take a test, you get a hundred on it. We all move on with our lives. And for many people, their bandwidth of, of tolerable grades is, 99, 98, 97, 96, 95, 94, 93, 92, 91, maybe up to like 88. I can live with that. The perfectionist is like, why wouldn't I get a hundred? I need to get a hundred, maybe a 99, I guess. Right. And, and it's funny because I give a lot of talks. I'm lucky enough to speak at a lot of conferences. And there are two talks that I give that always make people cry imposter syndrome and perfectionism because perfectionism is people go, are you telling me I don't have to live my life this way? And I'm like, no, you don't like there's it's, it's so much safer away from the top than your brain is telling you, your brain is screaming at you that if you got a 98 on this spelling test, you're going to end up living under the third street bridge. And it just, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, I, I'm literally a doctor, right? Like they have a de- the degree and everything. I haven't gotten straight A's in my life, right? You know, I've, I've bombed some classes, I've bombed some tests. I've, you know, I did the thing where it's like, oh, I'm going to take pre-med bio at Wake Forest University. And I'm going to, I'm going to show them I'm so smart as I made it through 10 days of that class. And I said, nope, <laughs> I'm out. Life sciences for me, guys. Thanks. <laughs> Y'all take care. Um, and that's okay, right? That's, you know, the journey is certainly not what we think it's going to be. But the more perfectionistic you are, the less tolerant you are of paths that may differ, differ from what you thought they would be. Well, and do you think that this idea of perfectionism, um, do you think kind of presents itself differently with gifted learners? What would you say the difference is between someone who's gifted and not gifted that has perfectionism? 
Is that the right way to say it? Yes. Oh, totally. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah. You could say has perfectionism is perfectionistic. I, you know, okay. I think they're interchangeable terms. I'm sure someone will come at me in the comments for that. But <laughs> <laughs> the idea here is that gifted learners differ in perfectionism in three important things. And one of the, things, the more you hear me talk, the more you understand my brain thinks in threes. So that'll come up a lot. First in, this is the most important one is intensity. Gifted kids are intense. You know, um, in fact, the name of my book is Davy Martin's Finds His 13s. And the number 13 not only references the gifted IQ of 130, but, it, you know, one of the characters who mentors him in the book says on a scale of one to 10, you care a 13. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's that's our kids. Right. I mean, I think if you're listening to this in podcast land, you're just going, yes, that's that's my kid. Right. Gifted kids don't get sad. They get despondent. They don't get angry. They get furious. Everything is ramped up to that next level. And that becomes particularly relevant in the educational sphere because kids care so much more. But if that kid is perfectionistic, you know, they're not just going to want to get a hundred. They need it. Right. It's a, it's a more intense experience. Then we have this idea of um, the intensity of thought you might call this an imaginational overexcitability. You might call this um, higher creativity, whatever brain term makes more sense to you. But the one of the vital things here is that the gifted brain can conceptualize things that other brains cannot do. So you don't just see the bowl of fruit in art class to do a still life. You see it in the nth dimension. You see texture and, and color and shade and and saturation and your brain is conceptualizing this right or or you're in computer science and you don't just see the next platform or you see the next great immersive video game experience and what that does is it raises your expectations of the experience it ranks it cranks that dial back up to 13 right it's not just, oh, I'm going to write a short story. It's I'm going to write the short story. <laughs> In 2055, children will be learning at this, you know, and, you know, at Harvard University on the moon, right? And, and it just, and while that is possible, it is not easy or common, right? But that, but the brain pays a lot more attention to what is possible. And then that segues into the third thing, which is um, asynchronous development. The short version of this is that neurotypical kids, kids with regular brains, um, tend to develop along the same wavelength, right? A 10-year-old who's neurotypical intellectually is 10, emotionally is 10, socially is 10, physically is 10, you know, more or less, they're in that spectrum. The more neurodivergent you are, the more that spreads out. And the brain science on this is a little, a little cloudy, but basically what we know is that the more energy developmentally that goes into the intellectual processing part of the brain, the, that energy has got to come from somewhere. So it usually comes from emotional regulation areas and fine motor skills. Um, and I, I'm oversimplifying, but that's, it's close enough for what we're trying to do today. What that ends up meaning though, is you might have a kid who has the idea for the next Percy Jackson series, the next great YA novel, but they don't know how to type yet. Or you can see this beautiful comic book character and you can't have the, you don't have the fine motor skills to draw it yet. 
you know, I mean, I golfed for a long time and I actually had to like work to get worse at golf because I got to the point where my brain knew what I was trying to do, but my body couldn't do it. And that was interesting. that that spread, right, is just it's all it's basically intolerable. You know, it's like so my brain says, oh, just hit the ball over there. And if it goes over there, it's going to roll towards the hole. And then they get yeah, that's what you're trying to do. And then my body will be like, oh, that seems like a great idea. Oh, why is it in the woods over there? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> uh, you know, but I'm a grown man and like I have a little bit more in the tank to deal with stuff like that. Imagine that split or that spread of functional levels when you're nine, you know, it's just, it's a lot of pressure to put on anybody, but especially a kid who's developing so that, you know, the intensity plus the power of ideas, plus the asynchronous development often means we're going to have gifted learners who are set up to struggle, don't have the skills to remedy it and are just going to have a more intense journey towards that experience full stop. So would you say it's like the combination of those three things or the specifically um, the ability of the brain to pay attention and see more possibilities or something completely different that I guess, I don't know if you want to say causes or leads to perfectionism. Yeah. I mean, everybody is so different in this space and perfectionism for some people is more of like a catalogical thing. It's like who you are, right? Think Monica from Friends, if we're gonna make a dated pop culture reference, right? Like Monica was like, it just has to be this sort of way. But most of the research on perfectionism shows that it tends tends to spike more in areas that we care more about, that we're more passionate or intense about. So I am much more perfectionistic as a parent because I care a lot about that than I am with lawn care. Yeah. Well, I don't keep up with the Joneses in that way, right? Yeah. You look at my front lawn and my neighbor's front lawn. I mean, it's like one of them looks like it could host Augusta National and then there's mine. Uh, but I don't, that doesn't really twing that for me, right? I'm like, eh, so it's a lawn, right? I'll, I'll mow it at some point. Um, but I worry about being a good parent. I worry about being a good partner. Those things matter to me. And gifted people tend to care much more about many more things than neurotypical people. So, you know, that it is, there's a wider range of things that might factor in to, to something that might load into that perfectionism. Um, But yeah, ultimately it really sort of comes down to the things you care most about. And, and that really lines up very nicely with the gifted experience. I've never really thought about it that way, about how it can present itself in different areas of your life. It doesn't necessarily have to be across the board, everything you do. And I'm I'm sure for, there are people who do experience that in many areas of, and I'm sure that's exhausting to, to live with. <laughs> <laughs> this is just actually a therapy session for Jessica. Uh, that's actually why I asked to be here today. <laughs> She's like, this I mean, sounds interesting. Therapy. Can I get in on this? <laughs> a little free therapy. This whole conversation, I just, I'm recording it for myself. Yeah. So would you say that perfectionism is a bad thing? Are there unhealthy and, and healthy versions? Yeah. Um, so perfectionism really sort of falls into two categories. Um, maladaptive perfectionism and adaptive perfectionism. And 
the idea is that it's not a bad thing to have high standards. It's not a bad idea to want to get a hundred on a test. It's not a bad idea to want to go to an excellent school to make the soccer team be the lead in the play, whatever those things might be. But the difference between an adaptive and a maladaptive perfectionism is once again, that range of outcomes we can tolerate. You know, so if you go for the lead in the play and you get the best friend instead, that failure is going to lead to a set of responses. And ultimately, those set of responses is going to point you in a direction of adaptive versus maladaptive perfectionism because failure is unavoidable. It's out there. It's everywhere. We try to do things. We put ourselves out in the world and they inevitably go different than we think they're going to go. So ultimately, the idea here is the adaptive perfectionist, the person with high standards that are flexible, says, cool, this is what I'm presented with. I'm going to make a choice to do that or not do that. And I'm going to see what I can learn from it versus the maladaptive perfectionist who says, I didn't get what I want. I'm either never going to do this again or completely obsess over it. So I'm guaranteeing myself the top spot. If you take the SAT and you get a 1430, the adaptive perfectionist says, wow, that's a pretty good score. You know, my, maybe if I take it again, I might study a little bit more. I might do some things differently. The maladaptive perfectionist is, says only people with 1600s get into Yale. And it's just, it, it doesn't really work that way. But if you're not allowing yourself to tolerate a broader range of responses, you know, you're setting yourself up to fail. So our interview with Dr. Matt went a little bit longer than we originally had planned for. So we decided to split this interview into two separate episodes. So to continue to learn from Dr. Matt and to learn more about perfectionism and to dive into imposter syndrome, make sure you listen to the next episode.